Hello and welcome to another edition of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today we examine the history and tradition of the geisha, the Japanese artisan or performance artist whose unique look is probably recognised around the world, and who for many is the embodiment of many aspects of Japanese culture. Leading us on this exploration is my special guest Hachiko, a Western practitioner of many parts of the geisha lifestyle. There's a lot of ground to cover, and Hachiko has musical performances on the shamisen to accompany the talk, so let's get straight to this interview with one of those pieces of music now. This is Gion Kuta. Thank you. 
Hachiko, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. <laughs> Hello. Now, we, uh, we listened to a little piece of music there at the start of, of this episode. Can you tell us a little bit about what we've just heard? Yeah, that was a piece called Gion Kolta. And uh, it's a dance that's, that's danced very frequently by geisha in uh, Kyoto. Um, and it describes the geisha's life through four seasons. So um, if, if you go to a party and you watch the dance, it reminds you of all the things that the geishas do, perhaps makes you excited about the next season coming up. And um, it, it's an interesting dance for the new uh, Maiko to start with um, because they... They are grounded in in the song with the lyrics, remembering where they are and who they are. So it's kind of a, a ritual introduction to the, the world of the flower and willows. Excellent. Can you um, start by just uh, telling uh, us a little bit about yourself as Hachiko? Um, people who are Patreon subscribers to the podcast will be able to be watching this as well as uh, the people who normally listen to it. So those, those that are watching will be aware of the fact, if they have managed to take their eyes off your beautiful kimono for a second, um, that you are not Japanese. And people who are listening to the podcast will also know from your voice that you are not Japanese, but you do live as geisha in many ways. Can you explain a little bit about your lifestyle? Well, I, I like to um, explore the Japanese arts uh, because I was initially attracted to the idea of geisha as people who are constantly immersing themselves and learning about art and following a series of steps, as I eventually did. I, I went through the different stages of training, following as closely as I could to Kyoto ways of doing things. There are many different geisha all over Japan and they do do different, they do it differently according to their locality. But I focused on Kyoto because the structures are, are quite well set up and preserved there. City geisha have the benefit really of more traffic therefore more attention, therefore more funding. So, of course, then it puts them in a position of being preservers of art. And I really felt that um, immersing myself as much as possible would help me to understand the whys and wherefores of uh, the lifestyle of geisha. So I worked on seeing my house as the okia, as a source of art, as a centre of uh, community and nurturing for people of all ages who are interested in Japanese art. And I'm having to do a lot of, and during lockdown, I've been doing, um, getting um, better at learning the hiragana and writing the Japanese. And I find that practising as a geisha, it, you practice art in a slightly different way than you do if you practice an art in Japan um, in general, if you're not a geisha. In, in Japan, it, people tend to choose one art and they stick to that and they develop and they get, a, if they're lucky, they get a, an art name that goes with it and um, they perfect their art in that one journey with that one art. Uh, one of the things that makes geisha unique preservers of art is that they practice a little of this a little of that and a little of the other and so from a zen perspective they start to really understand the relationship between the different arts and so i've found 
that I I try to alongside my epilepsy because I have uncontrolled epilepsy so I have quite a few seizures but I I try my best to practice art throughout the day of varying types and keep a also a meditative and calm mind so that I can allow the overlaps and the intermingling to kind of gradually come into my heart and when I it was a little while ago now that I went through the different stages, but I, I wore the hair and the and the clothing and the makeup of the that were appropriate to the different stages. And one thing that was interesting is you start out with you know covered in flowers and 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 beautiful kimono that are way more detailed than what I'm wearing now. And then as you progress and become more senior you wear simpler things and it, it feels almost like i mean to start with it's really great to have the art all in front because when you're shy and i'm actually quite a shy person um i actually enjoy being geisha in parties because i know what i'm doing otherwise i feel a bit lost so i found that was quite liberating to know what my function was um but um, yes, yeah, so when you start, it's really quite great to be covered in all of this big stuff, because even if you're nervous and you're not too sure what to talk about or how to bring people out, or how to encourage people to play the games, you can just sort of sit in a corner and look gorgeous. And, and, and that will do, you know, so that's a good start. And then gradually, as your social confidence increases, as you understand the the, um, the the relationship dynamics of the people who are attending the party, you you don't need that so much and so it was a really wonderful symbolic journey to sort of gradually feel that the art was kind of so that i was becoming a person of art rather than a demonstrator of it so you took yourself through the steps from from kind of myco through through to to geisha essentially do you yeah. find that the whole process of not just learning but but the mindfulness and and the kind of the techniques and the rituals which we'll talk about in a moment that are involved with with living in this way uh are actually beneficial to you um health wise for your epilepsy as well definitely um socially people when i'm in my full geisha outfit people ask me questions that I can answer. <laughs> so it's, it's le that's less confusing because having, as an epileptic for myself, I do feel a little like I'm living in a floating world because just like they say, the geisha's world is a floating world. The idea is that you enter a party space and everybody recognizes that it's a temporary space and you're celebrating, the, the, the myco are wearing specific things in their hair to echo the sentiment of the season and the feeling of the party. So it's very much everything brought together for one moment. Uh, and that has been uh, very handy for me. And as an, but as an epileptic, I can feel a little lost. Um, and so it's really quite handy to, to have sort of conventional ritualistic things to refer to uh, and that tends to ground me and I mean I've, I have plenty of seizures after the party but I find that I have had some seizures during a party <laughs> which have been irritating but um, because of the poetic aspect of the Ozashki and the fluidity and the spontaneity 
I've found that when I've had a seizure, it's not too much of a problem. When I'm playing my shamisen, um, and um, um, I'm given my shamisen to play, I have had times when I've had a seizure, just as I've been to be up to play. <laughs> and at that point, it is like me and the shamisen have never met before. I don't know what it's for. Uh, I can comprehend just about that I'm on the stage and people are expecting something because everyone's looking at me. But other than that, <laughs> so I have to say, you know, doesn't look like that's happening today, you know, and, and again, the spontaneity and the, the, the Zen-like nature of the art has helped me to sort of smooth over those times and develop confidence that no matter how many seizures I have, I can gradually progress. Excellent. So let's focus on the geisha tradition, uh, which, after all, is where you are most comfortable. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> so let, let's just start um, because there will inevitably some people who, who don't have much of a familiarity uh, outside of the look of the geisha, perhaps. So can you just start by explaining a little bit about the history of geisha generally? Mm. Geisha are, are um, interesting because they're actually quite brave women. Um, in, in traditional societies, the same, it was the same for us way in the past, same in, in the same in Japan way in the past. As a woman, you either are basically somebody's daughter or somebody's, somebody's wife. And um, that is the respectable way to go. Uh, but there's not much freedom in that. And so um, a lot of women who either out of choice or sometimes because of circumstance, they have chosen to live outside that world, even though there's an element of it denting their reputation because they're not following a conventional step of going from daddy to hubby. <laughs> um, so um, way in the past, uh, it's interesting because the dance is very important for geisha and actually women all the way through and even in kabuki which is known to be a men's art now where men where it's just men well it's starting to move on there's various aspects of kabuki that are, that are developing and reacting to women's lib but Kabuki was actually initiated by a female in around 1596. She started it, but by 1629, women were banned from Kabuki. So <laughs> even though they'd started the tradition, they'd been banned. And it was partly because, you know, there's rumours of promiscuity and this, that, and this that, and the other. We know, actually, that, you know, if you ban women from a space, it doesn't remove promiscuity. <laughs> <laughs> People have tried that in many different situations, haven't they? That's but, very true. Uh, yeah, but um, but the, when the first lady was doing um, did her kabuki thing, she was take drawing drawing um, drawing from myth and drawing from ancient times, drawing from shrine maidens who would be doing shamanic dances to actually bring the gods into the space to celebrate something like for example a good harvest or to pray for a good harvest and the if you go back even further we have the myth of amaterasu i don't know if you know about amaterasu tell us tell us about amaterasu amaterasu is the goddess of the sun so you know they say sometimes they say don't they that um 
Japan is the land of the rising sun. Yes. And so there's this myth of Amaterasu that she had this very unruly brother and he was quite jealous of her and and also wanted to live his own life and be quite random. So uh, one thing he did, apparently he flayed a horse that she liked and he threw the bloody, bloody skin into her ceremonial hall. She didn't That's like going to annoy that. people. Yeah, she didn't like that. So he actually did some other things that were much ruder than I care to mention, to be honest. But um, yes, he was a bit of a, a, a wild boy, let's say. But Amaterasu <laughs> got angry about this and decided to give up on the world and hide in a cave. And so there she was hiding in a cave and everybody needed the sun to come out, of course. So there was many people outside, many gods outside um, wanting to try and coax her out. Come out of the cave. We know he's awful, but, you know, we, we're nice. Come out of the cave. And um, so uh, people tried various things. Like there was a, a cockerel god who tried crowing to see if she would come out spontaneously. The person who finally managed to get it, get her to come out was, was Ameno Uzume, who is actually the goddess of dawn, revelry and dance. And what she did was she turned, upturned a bathtub and she jumped on top of it and she started doing an unruly dance, stamping on the bathtub, which reverberated. And it made Amaterasu look What's going on out there? So, because she was, I mean, you know, Uzume's dance was very erratic and strange and, and lively. So she, they managed to coax her out of the cave to come and watch. So dance then is an entertainment for the gods. And through that uh, fairly, you know, long path over the years, geisha have do draw on that um, because the geisha, because the dance became, rather than entertainment for the gods, drawing people into ritual and then entertainment for the people so that the people could go along to a party and remember the important things. Like, for example, you know, when you when it's spring and you get very busy, you may not go for a walk under the blossom. But if you have geisha around, they'll remind you, it's blossom time, get out there, enjoy it. So it's all part of engaging with myth and engaging with the gods and engaging with you know, the Shinto kami and spirits of what's around you. Hmm. As I say, most most people will have a, 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 an awareness of geisha through their look more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, but you talk a lot there, obviously, as well, about ritual within these things. And those two, two things do go together very much, don't they? You know, the, the, the clothing and the application of the makeup um, whether whether you're a myco or a geisha uh, and the way that your hair is styled, these are all very ritualistic things, aren't they? You know, getting getting ready to to meet people as a geisha isn't a five minute jump in the shower and throw some clothes on thing. How does that all work, and what is the particular meaning of of the things that geisha wear? I think it's interesting. I find difficulty as an epileptic. I find hard to kind of grasp onto things and I find words difficult. Like, what do we mean by ritual? You know, what do people mean when they talk about things? You know, <laughs> um, one of the things I think that's important is to not kind of label. It's, it's, it's easier to label something as ritual when you don't understand why it's being done. Mm. And this happened a lot while I was on my path. 
I'd do something because that's the way it was done. And then one day I'd have this aha moment and I'd go, oh, this because of that practical thing. <laughs> if I did it the other way, it, you know, it wouldn't work or it would fall off earlier or, you know, various things. So, for example, the painting of the face there are various things for it but one of the reasons is just purely practical because when geisha started to entertain they were entertaining in dark rooms in candlelight and during that time you want to see the hostess's face so paint it white you know and it's quite funny that because also people i think they kind of it's exoticize um the ritual and then for example they say things like as it's written in memoirs of a geisha she paints her face to hide her face now my experience is that that is the opposite because actually you paint your whole face white and then you paint the parts of your face that make an expression so <laughs> i found it was the opposite of a mask from that perspective when you start out Ritual is it, it. Ritual is an is um. It creates a shared experience, doesn't it? Ritual. Yes. Yes, it does. So, so it's great for training, and of course, just as it's great for training, it's great for us all because we all have beginner's mind. So we need to come back to and come back to and come back to. But just as Buddha taught Zen by holding up one flower, the flower is, it's it's not something to grasp. You know, it, 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 and so the ritual is, um, although you're, yeah, from, from a beginner's, you're enjoying it from the beginner's mind, but the heart of the ritual is, is practicality. And, and I think that's something that's missing very often when we think about things that are in a different country or, you know, we forget that it's, that's just ways humans have put together because it makes sense for them. And when we don't understand something, we can get excited about how mysterious it is. And it's a balance, isn't it, between, you know, going, oh, that's mysterious and also recognising it's part of daily life. Is it mysterious? People often talk about the mystery of geisha, don't they? But they talk about it in the same way that people talk about the mystery of being a Freemason. Yeah. Is, is it mysterious in that way? I think women are mysterious. Don't you find women mysterious? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think geisha are mainly mysterious because they're female. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I'm not sure um, whether um, yeah whether geisha are as mysterious. And for example, um, when you when when I've seen people or talked to people about what I do when I'm not dressed up in a thing, or or when I'm walking from say home to the Ozashki space, um, people. I can see people think that there's a bit of a Mikado-esque aspect to it. Mm. You know, like you giggle behind a fan. But, you know, if you're being practical, who has time to giggle behind a fan? You know, maybe at the end of the party when, you know, the majority of people have gone and you're talking to somebody you know very well, but you could argue that that's just being friend. That's just a friendship. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it, we... It's an eternal. I think it's an eternal struggle to find uh, what, like the line that we can walk. Mystery is all very well, but if we do too much mystery, then we may miss out on on the true heart of of, of something. And the heart very often is. I, I just find, for example, when I've worked with young people who have been part of the Okian and come along and helped at the party. Teaching them that has been hardest. Like, for example, right now, everybody needs to have a cup of tea now. 
you know, never mind how poetic we feel or how mysterious we feel. Everybody needs to have a cup of tea now. Or, you know, when the energy goes down and you think, then there's this wonderful part and I've got quite a few geisha movies because I've done a lot of research and there's this one lovely time when there's you know uh, drama happening in the Ozashki and there's tension building and you can see all the men getting you know kind of ready to have you know maybe pull out this you know they haven't got the swords on them but do the equivalent of that and one of the youngest Maiko in the corner jumps up and she says I'm going to do this dance you know and it's just like she doesn't know what's going on but she knows that entertainment needs to happen <laughs> So one could say, oh, that's very ritualistic that she did a dance just then. But actually, she's just trying to keep everybody yes. on an even feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just defusing tension, isn't yeah. it, ultimately? Yeah, yeah. But, but a lot of these things do have do have meaning ascribed to them, at least. I'm thinking about, you know, with, with the look, for example, I'm thinking about yeah. the, the, the hair decorations. Some of those have particular meaning. The, the pattern of makeup on the back of the neck for a Maiko versus a geisha certainly has meaning, doesn't it? Yeah, are there, are there aspects? There? Yeah, there is, but it, again, not as much as one would imagine. The same pattern on the back of the neck for a geisha or a myco, apart from there's a special um, three pronged thing you can do for a special occasion. So um, uh, that might be when it's a special occasion for you, or it might be a special occasion for everybody if it's a particular festival, say New Year or something. So yeah, and there's a special feeling, isn't there, from putting those things on at those times? So. Uh, and try and think of other things. The other thing is um, one one thing that's ritualistic and a series of steps is that the outfit, as I was saying, changes as they go through the training. So to begin with, for example, you just have the lower lip painted and kanzashi that dangles down in front of the face. And that's for your first year. But again, that's for the first year in Kyoto. In other places, and like I say, there are geisha on every of in, in each of the main islands of Japan. They may ha not have the same structure. Sometimes, sometimes because they choose to do something differently because they're highlighting a more local thing. Like, for example, in Gifu, um, they they have a tradition of cormorant fishing, so the maiko will go along and dance there, and so. Things like that steer. When you're a geisha, you have to think, right, what does the host want? What do the person who asked the part for the party, what does what does the host want? What what's the season? What's the reason for these situations? So there's a lot of ritual in that too, in dis in in choosing. So you would choose hair ornaments and things because it's that particular party to celebrate this, that and the other. So yes, there's a there's there's that ritual too. Yeah. And um the different so the different stages of the hair and the and the and a little bit in the makeup the makeup the makeup mainly stays the same but just like geisha are pres preservers of for example kimono uh kimono tradition in kimono tradition you start with long sleeves this is a way it would have been for young women in the past when it was normal to wear kimono you would start with long sleeves and lots of decoration and quite a bit of red as well red is a young color and then gradually you would you would drop the red and you would drop the things and eventually you'd end up with a shorter sleeve garment when you were older you know and so that's that they they preserve that by through the different stages of training so 
uh, in the collar, they say when you become, when you go from being a myco to a geisha, they call it erakai, which is turning the collar. And you go from having a collar that um, had red patterns in it and was very bright to just a plain white one, for example. Let's talk a little bit about uh, performance for mm. geisha. Um, when, when we were talking earlier, before, before we, uh, we met to record this, um, you were talking about the cauldron of arts, for mm. example. Can you yeah. explain what you mean by that and, and which arts are important in geisha traditions? I think, uh, yeah, well, one, thing, one of the things I learned quite early on was somebody was said to me that if you're really interested in geisha, that you, it's important not to just study geisha. You know, it's important to study the world that they're in and the, and all and and the, and the smattering of the arts as well that they practice. So that would be dance. There's a lot of stamping, by the way, in the in the art in the dance. Even 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 if you look um, at them and they're so delicate because it's it's dance that's been brought from shaman, shamanic tradition into a, you know a gentle space. They still stamping. <laughs> They're still wanting to wake the sun up, you know, and um, uh, so there's that. And then there's playing the shamisen and singing songs and the traditional songs that are passed down are really important. And there's the tea ceremony and there's just and also learning how to wear kimono and things like that. And also um, geisha are, are avid followers of other arts. So, for example, there's during the um, New Year celebration, the um, maiko will wear an ornament which has um, little um, slats with a little roof on them and they're actually copied they're, they're the same shape as the as the um, big name slats that go in front of the kabuki theater at the beginning of the season and the mica will go and watch the performances and then they'll go backstage to meet their favorite actors and they'll get them to sign their names and then they'll go to parties and they'll have their favorite kabuki actors names written on their kanzashi so tell us a little bit about the music you mentioned the shamisen there and you mentioned song um are there particular themes or particularly traditional songs which are performed yeah this there's, there's um but there's there's a a mix you can choose there's this huge huge um amount of things that they can do and and very often your musician won't you may not be one somebody from your house as well so i've heard that you know there's often discussions like which songs do you know <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, we could do that one and we could do, oh, 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 oh no, I can't do that. Oh, well, she can do that one. You know, <laughs> all of that backstage discussion, you know, mm. that goes on. And um, two, two, but there's a lot of preservation that happens in songs. For example, two of the most, uh, there's a song, two songs that go along with the most popular games, Kompira and Tora Tora. And the Kompira one is a simple game with a cup. Uh, it's it's very simple, but it's quite addictive. You know how these simple things can be. Like you watch and you go, I could do better than. That. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go next. Yeah, um, and that that song is literally just it. The song says there's this lovely shrine on top of this hill in this area, and people pray for for um a good journey on the sea, and the ships go round the corner and raise their sails and everything. And you must go there at least once. 
And so you sing that over and over and over again while you're playing this song. <laughs> so it's actually, you know, preserving the attitude towards shrines and the attitude towards and the, and the, the special aspect of that place. And also Tora Tora is interesting because in that song it says, look, there's a hero. He's called Watonai. He's got, he's wearing this and he's wearing that and he's in a really thick bamboo jungle. He's pushing through the bamboo. What will he find? And basically it's a little like scissors, paper, stone. You have to decide whether to then be the old lady, the hunter or the tiger. And one kills the other and this, that and the other. But that's based on uh, Kabuki and actually Bunraku puppet theatre before that, a piece that was written about uh, a warrior who lived, I think, in the year 600, around the year 600, and his fantastic exploits, during which, of course, he was going through a bamboo thicket at some point and met a tiger. <laughs> so, you know, these things are passed down with a sort of um, internal nod at folklore, and um, it's like it's and it makes it makes it quite exciting because if you delve a little, you find the reasons behind things that look quite light-hearted. So you've got um, you've got a shamisen next to you, yeah. and we're talking about this sort of thing. Can I tempt you to, to an example? Yeah, yeah, I could try. So this is um, called Kokiriko, and uh, it's an interesting dance. It's actually done several times, a couple of times a year to celebrate the harvest and also to pray for a good harvest. And I, I chose it because as a geisha who's not in Japan, uh, I don't have to learn the local things. Now, that, th th there's, there's pluses and negatives to, to that. Obviously, it would be a lot more hard work to have an older sister above me telling me what to do. But at the same time, sometimes I don't have the guidance that perhaps would be more ritualistic and more easy to follow. So one of the things I try to do from that perspective is use my special situation to explore Japanese art from all over Japan, um, especially trying to find ways trying to find ways what things that are popular i'm not a preserver but just to communicate and a number of times actually i've done quite a few times i had i've had a situation where i've been asked to come and play something and i've been playing for a lot of japanese people and it's really lovely to when i'm playing something and they all start singing and joining in and and that's just i mean as a as a as a Totnes geisha, that's that's the sort of diplomacy that's just really priceless, mm. you know. So this um, was actually lost during a during the war. A lot of a lot of things came under threat. A lot of folklore and and myth came under threat during the war. Everyone was very busy, and you these things need to be passed down, don't they, from one generation to the next? So if you get a break in the generation, then it can be a real problem. So, but this, but this was written about in a book by this poet and this other person went, that's interesting and started doing a bit of investigation. And eventually after the war, they went to the place where it originated and found an old lady who remembered singing it when she was young. So it all got put together. And at that point, the government was keen to preserve it. So actually put it on the, and now it's on the, 
middle school, uh, prime like primary school level, they all learn this song. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. And how long did it take you to learn what is a, an, an instrument which in our culture is, is rarely played, let's be honest? Hmm. I, well, I actually, I have, a, I have an intimate relationship with my shamazen, having, uh, even though it's taken me a long time, I'd say about, I've been with her for about seven years now. But when I bought her, because I run the whole thing on a budget, um, I, she was actually broken. And I actually learned how to make the rig. I fell in love with the chisel. <laughs> I made all of the traditional pegs. So I actually reskinned her. So that's, you know, it's, I have a very intimate relationship with my shamazen. And it was a real pleasure to be involved with it on that level. So then I hope that she'll forgive me when I play her out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> You do yourself a disservice, you really okay, do. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, so when was a geisha, and this is another thing that, that I found interesting, because people go on about, you know, how pretty they are and, you know, the sweet little girls and this, that and the other. And in the past, they used to actually start around the age of nine or ten, they would actually debut, which is another reason why, for example, you see the lower lip painted, even though they're in girls who are like 15 or 16 or even 17, Maiko, you see them with the lower lip painted. And you also see in their, in their long sleeves, you see a line there. That's one thing that's very important. People who wear a furisode might just think, oh, they just wear long sleeves. But actually they wear a line and it's because, it's because the, the kimono gets tucked up. And it's because when they started, they would be wearing kimono that belonged to the okia but they'd only be nine or ten plenty of growth to need to put in so these days the their tuck is there to indicate that they're at child level even though you know they're some of them are quite huge now of course <laughs> <laughs> i did not know that that's really interesting so we've covered a little bit about the music there and and you've spoken a little bit about dance as well and um 
the uh, references back to the uh, kabuki theatre and and to the seasonal aspects of dance as well. Um, what about other arts within there? Uh, you know, painting, calligraphy, those sorts of things. Uh, do they tie in, in into the geisha's work as well? Well, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because for for me, uh, I don't. Uh, I have the extra arts of learning to speak and write and read Japanese, which of course they have, uh, they already will know how to do that. Having said that, if you are someone who comes from a different part of Japan and you go to Kyoto to be a Maiko, you need to learn the high dialect of that Hanamachi, the flower town. So that, and that takes quite a bit of learning too. Uh, so there's some things, there's a lot of things that we would consider Japanese arts that are actually more integrated integrated in Japan and of course especially in a space where people are trying to create and and preserve a traditional culture back then everybody would use a brush to write for example mm. so you know that would be an important thing to be able to do that um and of course there's there's the tea ceremony as well that they all learn which which helps to both give them the opportunity to again demonstrate the arts to others but also it's quite grounding too and it gives them uh, seeing things as seeing basic and humble things as a series of steps is is very good especially for the young mind tends to want to jump about all over the place and uh yeah some you know real focus is needed so yeah, they'll explore lots of different arts and and always keep an art ear out for other arts and and other extra things they can pick up. Because of course, another thing is maybe in the past when they were about you know there were about hundred thousand geisha in in Japan and they were serving all sorts of different people. These days, especially in the private osashkis, you're quite likely to be hanging out with somebody who practice who's who's a who's a no performer or who's a poet who does haiku or something like and or who um is a proficionado of the tea ceremony so knowing these things are important because it gives you an opportunity to, uh, more more space to have conversation and, and understanding and sharing of of arts in 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 the floating world together Let's just, uh, to, for the final thing that I think we really ought to focus on is actually the tea ceremony, because, because that is... I just yeah. want to mention one person who I think is very interesting, uh, who is, um, um, that's related to dance and the power of dance, is because as you can see, dance, I mean, obviously, the thing is with tea ceremony is you do it in specific places, but the main art really is of the geisha is the Yazashki, the party. And at that time, obviously no tea ceremony just you know so dance and song is is the main and games are the main vehicle of of the arts there but um in 2011 you remember there was a big tsunami in japan yes and it hit quite quite full-on the um small city of kamaishi and in kamaishi there was um a geisha there called suyako ito and she was 84 at the time and planning to retire when she was 88 actually um, she'd seen men, she'd seen quite a few tsunamis hit the place. So went from through her time of, you know, her ages. And um, when she, she was preparing to go to an Asashki when the tsunami hit, she apparently put her socks on and she had planned what song, song she was going to play that evening. She was ready to go out and the tsunami hit. 
and she would have drowned but one of her, one of her patrons who loves her art so much actually ran down the hill and grabbed her and stuck her on his back and ran up the hill with her and as a result she escaped because her art was so appreciated she lost her shamisen unfortunately but then it was found in the wreckage soon as she got it She's back there with the songs, you know, keep yeah. lifting everyone's spirit because they're all, you know, lost their homes. And then after the whole thing sorted, so she's, she's it's kept her working, it's kept her working. She actually designed a special choreographed, a special dance, which she calls Flee Away. And she teaches the whole community that now and they dance it at a festival and it shows all the things you need to do when a tsunami comes. Leave your possessions behind, run up the hill, things like that and she's put them into choreographic mood because she cares about her community and her locality and the passion that you know art and and the reality that art can bring us you know i just wanted to mention her because i think she's really interesting oh deservedly so that's amazing i did i had not heard that that's really interesting thank you Okay, yeah. so so yes, let's let's move on to the tea ceremony as the as the final thing that we need to cover yeah. then, because again, it's one of those things that people naturally kind of associate with geisha, isn't it? And mm. the tea ceremony is something that does have a lot of um, sort of it, it's a very prescribed ceremony, isn't it? There there are things that are done that have intrinsic meaning to them, and uh, but yet at the same time, you used the word humble earlier. It's a very humble ceremony. It's not yeah. you know the 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 vessels that are used are, are are not kind of you know the equivalent of our bone china and and kind of well, finest it wedgwood. It depends. it depends because actually that evolved in itself. When the tea ceremony was invented, you know, it was very humble affair. But during a during the phase, there was an older phase in Japan where. Um, there wasn't the warring states anymore so the samurai were kind of although they were higher status than people for example who sold things you know they didn't have a position they didn't have really have a thing to do anymore and there was this awkward time where the merchants were actually middle classes were actually gaining favor and power and so you had a situation there with the tea ceremony where it got a little bit perverted where people would actually host amazing tea ceremonies where they had beautiful sets and it was all about and then, and then this person came you know a new person came along and said actually no 10 foot hut is all you need hun do you know what I mean <laughs> so, but it's very easy to swerve off a path do you know what I mean if you think you've got a good reason so um so how how are tea ceremonies normally performed now are they performed in in that original kind of more humble way or have has it has it grown into something else generally no i don't think so i think that that really clamped back down on it because people were saying well what is the point of this and then the point is not showing off the point is to engage with the earth and to engage with engage with the different elements and to find yourself as as a product of the elements yourself with the tea um, respecting everybody as equal um, within the ritual and and joining together and so geisha served the tea ceremony for example they sometimes do really big ones uh, to to celebrate for example the plums coming out the plum blossoms coming out and you'll have huge er, huge areas with great big you know lots of white plastic tents because we love those don't we as human beings <laughs> <laughs> And th there will be areas where there's a geisha who's doing the whole thing and then other other people who are bringing in the bowl and the sweet 
and presenting to everyone who are just sitting, you know, at little tables and going, oh, I've come along for my tea and my and my sweet. So they're not part of uh, a secluded ceremony in quite the same way. So but the the um, the the heart of it comes through because of the, you know, the, the four aspects uh, of of the tea ceremony, which are said to be harmony, respect, purity and tranquility. And these things are very important to practice alongside the geisha's life. I mean, I, I, I find it wonderful that these women are, are practicing their arts way into their 80s and 90s. And, you know, they don't you can't they're not pretty little things anymore. But that's not the point. The point is that they're arts people. And so, you know, that's important to recognize. And I have to say as well with the tea ceremony, sometimes people kind of think well ritual and ceremony is a bit of a faff you know they, they prefer to they prefer to uh they think it would be simpler to make just, just builders tea in the kitchen <laughs> but if you put the kettle on yeah for a cup of tea and then you realize you haven't got any milk from a british perspective you're 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 in trouble aren't you then you know especially if you haven't got someone who you can get to run to the shop yeah <laughs> So, you know, there's an element of the tea ceremony that is just bringing it down to the practicality. You know, what do we need? You know, do we do we want to make tea in a cold bowl? No, we want to warm it first. And we may as well give it a little bit of a wash while we're at it, because that will respect the fact that we're doing something special. So there's an element of that. And, and, and for example, turning the bowl three times when you actually do the tea um, ceremony one of the things I realized is that the bowl is facing you when you're making the tea now you're presenting it to somebody over there you want them to see the front of the bowl with the human body the way it is picking up the, the cup and turning it that number of times means when you present it the front of the cup is facing the person you're presenting to so you know you learn the ritual but actually you know it, it's almost like we do the ritual and we don't have to then explain why, you know, you don't have to tell the young person just to say to the young person, we're doing the tea ceremony, dear. <laughs> and you don't have to get them to think too hard or explain why, you know. Just just to close off, I just want to ask you about um, the, the state of uh, the geisha community now in the 21st century in Japan. <laughs> you've, you've mentioned a couple of times the kind of the stereotypical view of, uh, oh, geishas, you know, they're pretty young things running around the, the streets and whatever, not the 84-year-old woman who's <laughs> still working every single night on her yeah, art yeah. because that is who she is. Mm. Now, it's very easy to go to, well, Kyoto even, but certainly other areas of Japan as well. And... and um, you know, have your photo taken with a geisha in giant air quotes. Uh, and of course, there is this public face of of any kind of um, religion or following or call, call it what you will. There's a public face of voodoo, which is different from actual voodoo. There's a public face of yeah. of, of um, you know, Spanish religious festivals, which are which are very different. And there's certainly a public face, isn't there, of, of what people call geisha, which are, aren't actually geisha at all. Mm. What, what is the status now of true geisha against that public face? 
I think what that comes down to really is um, it's a relationship thing. You know, we all can potentially have deep relationships with everyone we meet, but there's only so much time in the world. <laughs> so although Geisha, you know, would be a very, every Geisha would be a really great friend. You can't stop them in the street when they're in the middle of going to work because, you know, they're busy. They've got, they've got to be there on time, you know, and, and they actually have rules that you can't, you know, you shouldn't chase them. People are actually chasing the geisha and actually, you know, holding their clothes and this and the other, not recognizing that they're women in the middle of something. So I think that one thing that's important to recognize is that geisha are really friendly people. They just don't have all the time in the world. So, you know, they're not they're not able to connect, you know, as they would do in a private space when you book them with paying the amount of money it costs for their time. Uh, the other thing I think is important to recognize that I think that geisha are a real great symbolism or symbol of how adaptive women are because geisha will be, will, will help with anything to a certain extent. So for example, quite often when a um, company is launching a new product, they may well in the big shopping mall have set up a little stage and and in and pay for geishas to come along and and perform right in the middle of this very busy <laughs> shopping mall just to draw attention and to celebrate the nature of the of the product so um there is that too and also it's interesting in lockdown um there's been more uh more geisha on geisha actual from Okia going online and telling people about their lives because they haven't been able to have as many parties and things mm. but it's to a certain extent, it's just been going along the same as it always does. So like you say with the voodoo, you know, the voodoo practitioner is just living their life. You know, they can't do their ritual just yet because they have to have their, you know, dinner first. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're actually living very practical lives. And, uh, and, it's, and, that's, and that's, really, that's really inspiring to see these women adapting and also their older sisters and their Okasa and the mothers of geisha houses thinking to themselves, how can we apply our art? How can we bring the inspiration, you know, from Amaterasu, from Ameno uh, Azume, you know, through to the people that we're meeting today in this party or in this circumstance? And, uh, and that's just, you know, that's the same spirit, the same adaptive spirit that I think women have really demonstrated all the way through uh, the generations. Fantastic. Now, a lot of people will will profess to have a slight amount of knowledge of uh, of of this because yeah. I've watched memoirs of a geisha. So, <laughs> if 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 people actually want to research this properly, where would you recommend they they go and look for information? Oh, um, I think really um, it's worth just you know I think Google you know searching is 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 the thing to do you know look for you know Kyoto Geisha is a good place to start because they have um they they have like I say they have the funding not as much as they ought to have obviously but they have the funding and they have to to maintain a tradition so it's a good place to start looking for Kyoto Geisha and uh you'll find that you know they there there are uh, fa there are facebook pages and 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 youtube accounts all over the place I think if you want to find something authentic in the world, you do actually need to do a bit of research. So, yeah, you can't just rely on Hollywood to give you an idea of what something is. That makes it 
a little bit inaccessible but at the same time there's your mystery you know you can actually you know go on your journey of discovery yourself and it will be yours you know you will find out for yourself and it's been so in, in liberating and inspiring for me to you know actually commit and 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 recognizing that I don't know much as much now as I will in two months time but that's okay because I know more than I knew two months ago just keeping on going just keeping on learning turning it and turning yourself into a geisha into an arts person bringing art into your life and making it relevant to who you are Chico, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. We're going to finish off with one more piece of music, uh, which which has more local relevance to you, perhaps. So just lead us into this by explaining what everybody is going to listen to. Yeah, this this um, piece is called Totnes Kolta, uh, which means the little song about Totnes. And it's kind of an echo of Guillaume Coulter. I wanted, uh, as part of my exploration and seeing the Japanese people who live in and around Totnes and who I've met, who have come from Japan and are staying in Totnes for a while, to see, to, I wanted to immerse again myself into the idea of Totnes being a flower town, uh, Totnes being a town of, of special quality. So, for example, uh, and, and praising and celebrating the things we have. So, for example, in the chorus, it says, uh, So, river, castle, well and bridge. And in Totnes, we have an amazing river that is tidal, and we have a really old castle, and we have the healing wells, and we have two marvellous bridges. So I just wanted to pull something together that perhaps eventually I could choreograph a dance to, and so then the geisha of Totnes can celebrate Totnes, the nature of Totnes and the coming together and, and joining in with that tradition of, of, of passing energy down from the spirits around us to our hearts and to our energy. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Here, once again, is Hachiko and her shamisen. Kojono susu no wa hones 
Thanks to Hichiko for a really interesting discussion and some beautiful music. Don't forget that the only reason that there are six seasons of the podcast to enjoy free of charge, and that we continue to put out fascinating interviews with people like Hachiko, is because of the generosity of our Patreon supporters. In return for a small amount each month, just one dollar at the entry level, supporters get bonus audio content, early access to interviews, and other exclusive extra rewards. Without that support, the podcast would not still be here. To help us keep going, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast and sign up. Or make a small one-off donation, if you enjoy what we do, on our homepage at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Thank you. On the next episode of the podcast, I'll be speaking with author Howard David Ingham about the interesting life and work of the relatively unknown psychic medium Gordon Higginson. I hope you can join us. Thanks for listening. See you next time.